Hello, everyone. Today is October 13th, 2020, and welcome back to the Change Healthcare Capital Connection podcast. I'm Deanne Kassim, and with me today from our respective home offices, of course, is Angela Evat. Hey, Angela. Hi, Hi Deanne. Well, we're just 21 days left until Election Day, and today we'll be talking about the latest healthcare industry updates from Congress and Capitol Hill and state houses across the nation, along with some discussion of the current dynamic election season on both the federal and state levels. Let's start with Capitol Hill. Well, we have been waiting eagerly for a fourth COVID rescue package to either be negotiated or not be negotiated. And uh, definitely the recent negotiations have been ongoing on and off again. Um, But here's really the important things you need to know. The House passed a skinny version of the HEROES legislation, if you will, with a price tag of $2.2 trillion. And that happened earlier this month. Uh, The White House, in response, appointed Treasury Secretary Mnuchin as a negotiator, but they wanted a lower price tag. And I believe the latest um, fee that was offered was 1.8 trillion, all of which still seems like a lot of money. But you know, why do we care about this? Well, there's a few things that we've been tracking. Mostly it would fund and give some authority to HHS to pursue some public health infrastructure types of efforts, looking on really building that out so we can not only get out of this pandemic with more data and more data exchange um, from the state health departments and the CDC, but also be better prepared for uh, the next disaster, whatever that might be. Now, given that this is an election year, as we all know, and the presidential race, um, depending on which poll you look at on any given point on any given day is what it is, there seems to be some inside the Beltway consensus that making a deal on a fourth COVID rescue package could be a win for the president. And his recent push to get back to the negotiating table and have the Treasury Secretary do that with, of course, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi um, could be evidence that everyone realizes that to get some sort of a mutual win here, even though nobody is going to get everything they want, might be in everyone's best political interest. Um, Of course, when that means nobody gets everything they want, you're going to have some folks that are not happy. So there are progressive congressmen and women in the House that think the skinny heroes didn't go far enough in what they thought was important. And of course, conservative senators don't don't agree to the price tag at all. Senate Majority Leader McConnell wants liability protection for businesses in the final deal. And he has said that from the beginning of negotiating packages. So it seems that ultimately, if Speaker Pelosi can get a compromise and if the White House can agree to it, um, there could be some movement either way. Um, Just, again, remains to be seen. Um, The reasons for that as to what might happen are threefold. There is strong opposition from at least a handful of senators, uh, and there are rules that empower those senators to debate a bill for many days. Now, In in, um, conjunction with that, we have this event going on in the Senate, which involves the confirmation hearing of Judge Amy Coney Barrett for the Supreme Court nomination. So McConnell has said he'd like to have that as the last week in October to be set aside for Senate floor debate, all of which really equates to we don't have a lot of time right now um, to to do this before the election. Uh, in terms of a fourth COVID package. So what happens in the lame duck session? And for those of you um, that don't know what a lame duck is, other than the animal, it really is the period after the election where Congress comes back, 
finishes up unfinished business, and then of course breaks for the December holidays. Typically, we only get one week of that in November, um, one week working session in November. And this year, we have uh, government funding that is set to elapse on Friday, December 11th, meaning that there are less than two weeks available in December to get not only funding the government, but any chance of a COVID rescue package, additional unfinished bills that have nothing to do with healthcare. And then two things that we've really been looking at would be, are they going to pass some sort of telehealth piece of legislation that would give HHS and CMS some authority to make some of those telehealth waivers permanent? Because uh, of course those telehealth waivers are set to uh, expire at the end of the public health emergency. And then would we get any legislation that would address the issue of surprise billing? All of this remains to be seen. And of course, when we come back after the election, we'll have a lot of updates and a lot to unpack. So upcoming rules. There are several rules, both proposed and final, sitting over at the Office of Management and Budget, which is an arm of the White House that looks at finishing up proposed rules and finishing up final rules before they're released. Some key ones that we're waiting on that will have um, wide-reaching implications for the industry would be the final rule that CMS has written just dictating price transparency for payers. Um, that hit OMB last month, so we are expecting that to come out at some point, hopefully before the end of the year. OMB typically has 90 days to act on a rule before it's supposed to be released. Um, and also HIPAA privacy. There is a proposed rule um, that is entitled Changes to Support, Remove Barriers to Coordinated Care and Individual Engagement. Um, and so, of course, that would have big implications for the industry. That rule actually hit in July. Um, so theoretically, it should be out at the end of this month. But um, there's been a lot of things that have been going on this year, um, folks working from home. And of course, there's some COVID going around certain places um, around the White House complex. So all of this has a huge impact on when these rules might come out. So I uh, mentioned the Supreme Court nomination and what we might expect of how that would or would not play into a court hearing on the ACA. That hearing is, of course, supposed to begin one week after Election Day on November 10th. And when they would actually make a judgment could be literally anywhere around the springtime next year. Again, TBD. Um, but I just thought I'd share the recent um, Kaiser Family Foundation poll that was conducted at the end of last month on what does the public think about the ACA, really. And I thought it was interesting that 49% found it favorable, 42% found it not so favorable. So really kind of split indecision, if you will, with slightly more liking it. But the one thing that was incredibly popular was protections for pre-existing conditions. So... In our next episode, uh, just to tease this out a little bit, Angela, one of the things I want to talk about when we get to that point is what can we expect if an ACA decision comes that overturns the law? What can we expect if it stays? And what might the candidates um, or whoever is, of course, wins the presidential election be thinking about? Um, so far, can, uh, Vice President Biden has laid out quite a few policies that are talking about the public option, and he would really build off the ACA regardless of the court decision. And we've been waiting for details of a health plan from the current administration, and some of the details um, are not really there yet, um, but you know, definitely to be continued, I think, in, in the next few weeks when we see how the election results end up. And, and, and also the balance of power between does the Senate flip 
to Democratic control, or does it stay within Republican control? Uh, really, the House of Representatives is not expected to change um, majority parties. So that said, just to wrap up, um, I don't really want to spend a lot of time commenting on polls. Um, I, I do say that if you wanted to look at uh, aggregate poll information, there's a website out there that is run by Real Clear Politics. Do your Google search or your favorite um, search to look them up. Um, but I think I, I personally learned some lessons in 2016 when we thought we figured out who was actually going to win. And well, uh, the results are what they are. So uh, I look forward to unpacking that in our, our next podcast. And then lastly, I would just want to say there, and this involves some of the state stuff, legal challenges to votes. Um, there's already talk about this potentially being a contested election in several states simply because of the way that the states are counting the ballots or not counting early ballots. You know, um, there's been some things with the state of Pennsylvania talking about the fact that they actually have to put their ballot and sign it in two places and it involves two envelopes, which if it's not signed in both places, is that no longer a valid ballot? Um, they're calling it a naked ballot in Pennsylvania. And the other thing is Pennsylvania and I believe Michigan and Wisconsin are also not planning to count early ballots all that early. So it brings up a possible election night scenario where these states, which are also important swing states, may not have all their ballots counted and it could take literally a week longer if there's legal challenges. All of this really um, in an unprecedented year leading up to what could be an unprecedented election night. Uh, so with that, I will segue into the state issues. And Angela, I'd love to hear what you're seeing. Sure. Um, and just to piggyback a little bit on some of the items that you talked about, um, where we'll see uh, more discussions in our next podcast on the ACA and what will happen there, and the particular implications potentially on Medicaid expansion um, and folks who received benefits under Medicaid expansion and how ACA uh, rulings could impact states in that regard. Um, and you're right in terms of the uh, poll, uh, ballots and uh, absentee ballots and early voting in states, we're seeing a lot of um, <clears throat> already uh, rulings by courts um, where folks are bringing up cases on uh, the administration of uh, voting in particular states. Um, and you mentioned a couple in um, Pennsylvania. We're also seeing in Texas when it has to do with um, the ballot drop boxes and the locations of those. So um, there's going to be a lot of interesting things to talk about as the election plays out in states. Um, but just to to roll back into the the healthcare discussion at the state level, you know, we're seeing states continue to take steps to reopen, um, most with a phased and regional approach, uh, and that hasn't changed. But states are also uh, extending their emergency orders put in place er early earlier. Um, we saw this at the federal level, uh, but states are also doing this uh, to continue with their uh, flexibilities and um, emergency orders. In addition, um, states are addressing uh, not only continuing to address COVID cases in their states, but uh, state public health authorities are also planning for vac vaccine distribution once one is available. Uh, back in September, HHS and the Department of Defense released documents that outlined the administration steps to deliver vaccine. And at that time, the CDC 
also provided a 57-page interim playbook for states, um, tribal and territorial and local public health departments, um, which they plan to update as more unknown questions are answered regarding the vaccine. But this playbook um, identifies key activities that state public health authorities should implement uh, to prepare for vaccine distribution. Um, the CDC also provided about 200 million to jurisdictions for vaccine preparedness, and this is through the CARES Act. Although um, the administration also estimates that, you know, the, the vaccine distribution will generally cost more than 200 million um, and estimates uh, in, in the trillions. Um, in return, the CDC is asking states to submit their vaccine distribution plans by next Friday or this Friday, October 16th. Um, so we're seeing states convene vaccine distribution task force or advisor groups. And this is not unlike at the beginning of, of the pandemic where governors were convening these task forces to address uh, contact tracing and PPE procurement and other uh, activities. But now they're also convening these vaccine distribution task force to address their plans for vaccine distribution. These groups are usually appointed by the governor, make up uh, public health officials, medical experts, and local community officials. We're seeing this um, in New York and Connecticut and Oregon at first. <clears throat> um, they're bringing together these groups where who are typically addressing things like vaccine prioritization. So who will get the vaccine first? Um, is it frontline workers, the, the, those who are at high risk? They're also looking at distribution network capacity, um, making sure they have qualified professionals to administer the immunizations, those uh, either the primary care providers, uh, pharmacies. Um, they're also looking at supply procurement to make sure that appropriate supplies are available, such as syringes, uh, refrigeration and storage uh, to maintain these vaccines. And then also the data infrastructure. Um, and they were working to look at their current infrastructure on immunization reporting to ensure that they continue to be able to track and report uh, immunizations, in particular, where immunizations might require a second dose and ensuring patients are reminded about that second dose, get the same vaccine for the second dose. And then most importantly, the public education efforts they're looking at. Um, so as I mentioned, this isn't unlike what we saw earlier in, in governor's convening task force to address COVID. Uh, but the hope is that the challenges that they face during testing and procuring sort of per, uh, PPE, um, those challenges aren't repeated in the, uh, in the vaccine distribution and lessons we've learned. For sure, that really seems like a heavy lift um, yeah. in terms of the supply chain, in terms of, I know I've seen that one of the vaccine candidates requires like this incredibly cold temperature that is right. beyond the capabilities of your standard freezer. And then of course, as you mentioned, the data and the infrastructure. Wow, mm -hmm. there's going to be a lot of lessons learned out of this all over the place. Yeah, so, um, Let's turn to, to state budgets and Medicaid. Uh, we spoke a little bit about the uh, federal stimulus package that is still yet to be determined. Um, and states uh, are really looking at their revenue collections. For most states, these revenues have plummeted uh, as you know, commerce slowed during, uh, to curb the spread of COVID. Uh, as a result, many states have faced major budget shortfalls for their fiscal year 2021 budgets, which began in July. 
Um, most states are making across the board cuts to balance their budgets, uh, but some are making cuts to Medicaid. In particular, we saw cuts being made to Medicaid in Alaska, Ohio, uh, Michigan, and West Virginia. Um, on top of that, you know, states are, are experiencing significant Medicaid enrollment growth uh, due to COVID and, and the loss of an employment-sponsored uh, employment insurance. Um, the CDC recently reported over 4 million new Medicaid and CHIP enrollees uh, between February and June of 2020. And this is nearly a 5.7% increase since the public health emergency began in March, um, with Oklahoma and Missouri seeing the greatest growth. Um, you know, some believe that earlier federal stimulus funds had helped to curb the state revenue losses. Um, but it's yet to be seen if further federal funds will be allocated to states uh, later on to continue uh, to, to help them out. The uh, states are going to start thinking and considering their fiscal year 2022 budgets, and those discussions begin in October, November with governor's budgets. Um, and this is where we might see uh, a larger impact than we saw in the fiscal year 2021 budgets due to the continued sort of suppression of revenue collections. Um, so it's yet to be seen to, uh, on, on the budgets for, for 2022. Uh, yeah, definitely sounds like there's a lot of financial pain and some tough decisions that will have to be made. That's right. Um, so other things that we're seeing in the state level um, is around state data privacy. Um, so state data privacy uh, has been uh, seeing an increased interest. And these are policies that states are considering to put additional protections in place for individuals around their data. And that's all, uh, usually all data, including health data. And these um, policies provide broad rights around um, notice, uh, providing notice to individuals about how, in, how organizations are collecting their data, um, allowing rights to opt out of the collection of their data or delete their data or amend uh, their information. And we saw uh, a lot of activity last year, uh, but we're seeing sort of a resurgence uh, as states prepare for their 2021 session. In particular, um, Washington released their draft bill, and this is the Washington Data Privacy Act. And it's likely to be introduced, and this bill would be the th state's third attempt to pass a comprehensive data privacy legislation. Um, so we'll be watching that one. In addition, we saw Texas and Oregon convene advisory groups between sessions and recently released recommendations on their state data privacy policies. The recommendations from the Texas group were very broad, uh, but really acknowledged the need to align any state data privacy legislation with the existing regulations governing healthcare data in particular. And then the Oregon um, Attorney General's Task Force is currently considering draft language. Um, however, it's still to be decided if legislation will be introduced in 2021. And then finally, in Virginia and Wisconsin, uh, both are planning to convene an advisory group to make recommendations on future state data privacy legislation. Um, so it sounds like states are gearing up for the 2021 session as it relates to data privacy, and we'll be keeping an eye on that. 
well, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure that um, what we were expecting in terms of privacy, I know I saw this on the Congress side, but what we were expecting in terms of federal privacy legislation got sort of waylaid by everything that needed to happen for addressing uh, the pandemic. But then now you also have this wrinkle of, well, what about these contact tracing apps and what's going on with that data? So um, never a dull moment when it comes to privacy legislation, but I think uh, we'll be definitely up to our ears in that next year. Absolutely. Um, and you bring a, up a good point in terms of the contact tracing and public health data. States are, are definitely looking at um, those details and, you know, how um, patients must be notified around their uh, contact tracing data and the, and the retention of that data. Um, so yet to be seen. But we're also seeing, um, and it's not expected, uh, a lot of telehealth efforts in states. Um, we're seeing at the federal level, but also at the state level, um, almost all states issued emergency provisions, either through executive orders or through guidance, uh, either requiring coverage in the private market or allowing for certain uh, telehealth flexibilities um, during the emergency. And these were related to licensure across state lines, so providers can practice telemedicine over state lines, expanding either the types of providers that can practice or expanding locations in which telehealth can be used. So at this point, states are concerning, you know, what flexibilities will be made permanent after the emergency. Um, and the what we saw is uh, several states are taking steps to expand telehealth, particularly in uh, Kansas, um, Minnesota, New Hampshire, Ohio, New York, uh, Tennessee, and Virginia have already taken those steps. Um, and I'll highlight a couple of them, in particular uh, in Tennessee, uh, a new law will require payers to cover telehealth services at the same rate as in-person care and also cover remote patient monitoring. So this is where a patient might be at home um, and they use a device that is then tracked by <clears throat> a provider regarding the, their health status. Um, and the, they're requiring this coverage of uh, at the same rate as in-person care. Um, and if the services are covered in Medicare with the payer and provider negotiating the amount of the reimbursement. The bill also uh, expands, or the law is signed into law, it also expands the definition of an originating site. So this is where the patient's located. Um, in some states, a patient can't be located in home and has to be actually in a provider's office to receive telehealth. Um, but states are really looking at, you know, how patients continue uh, to stay home and receive care um, while while providers are getting paid. And wow. then in New Hampshire, that's New Hampshire. Sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> um, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to um, say that I know that the whole idea of payment parity and then versus coverage parity, so paying telehealth at the same rate as in-person care has been something that was discussed earlier this year by the Senate Health Committee. And you know the interesting thing about that is that they didn't come up with a conclusion, but the one thing that um, the federal government has to do is to let the states make their own decision uh, because they govern the health plans in the private sector or employer-sponsored healthcare, but that Medicare and Medicaid payment rates have to come from CMS, and that's why there's legislation in Congress that 
we hope gets passed that gives HHS that authority to make some of those decisions outside of the public health emergency. Yeah, um, and you bring up a good point in terms of, you know, how states are regulating telehealth. Uh, you know, they have the the power over uh, specific Medicaid provisions as well as um, state regulated private insurance. And we've, we've already seen about six states that have a required payment parity prior to COVID, uh, but that could increase um, with states looking at, re-looking at their telehealth policies. Um, so moving on to state elections and key states to watch. Um, for currently in the, uh, in the 50 states, there are about 99 state legislative chambers um, altogether. Um, and 86 of those chambers uh, are uh, are holding elected uh, elections this year. So that's uh, 44 states that will be holding elections. Quite a number of state legislators up for re-elections here. Uh, but headed into these elections, Republicans are holding a majority in more chambers than Democrats. There's Republican majority in 59 chambers and uh, Democrat majority in 39 chambers. And when looking at legislative uh, legislator elections, North Carolina might be uh, a potential to watch as it relates to uh, Medicaid expansion in particular. Um, the, the Senate and the House are, are possibilities for the Democrats in North, North Carolina. For Democrats to flip the Senate, the, the easier of the two, they would need to uh, two of the six seats that are currently leaning Republican. And to flip the House, the Democrats would need to pick up uh, at least five of the 12 seats that are leaning Republican. Um, with uh, a competitive race this year, as well as a contest uh, for the U.S. Senate uh, governor in and governor in North Carolina, there would definitely be a focus in North Carolina. Um, the current governor of North Carolina is uh, in favor of Medicaid expansion, but has received sort of pushback from uh, their uh, the Republicans uh, within their their chambers. But um, we're also looking at a governor election in North Carolina um, with uh, the current Democrat uh, Governor Cooper facing former Republican uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest. Um, North Carolina had a really close gubernatorial election in 2016 with Cooper winning just uh, by 0.2 points. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, Cooper supports Medicaid expansion, uh, but has faced opposition uh, from Republican legislators. So we'll uh, be watching the North Carolina uh, uh, races to, to see how that could potentially impact uh, Medicaid expansion in that state. And then also just a note on uh, elections, the, the 2020 election cycle will be the last one before states redraw their legislative and congressional districts. And they'll be using obviously the 2021 census data. So future elections could look a little different in certain regions, depending on uh, how the redistricting uh, sort of plays out. Sure, and that will have uh, major impacts for the next election cycle uh, in two years. So, yep. yeah, definitely good pointing that out. Well, thank you for all of that. Yep. Definitely a, a, a lot to um, digest. 
I'd like to thank our listeners for listening to our discussion today. And if you haven't already voted, please make sure you do so. Uh, quite the big election this year. Uh, don't forget to check out our show notes for links to resources and contact information. And stay tuned to the Change Healthcare podcast for more episodes covering the policy, healthcare, and health IT topics that you care about. I'm Deanne Kasim. Thanks for joining us again, and I hope you have a great rest of your day and stay well. You've been listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. For more information on this and other healthcare IT topics, please visit changehealthcare.com. Don't forget to check the show notes for useful links to related resources and our contact information. Thanks for listening and have a great day.